Hello and welcome to episode 89. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me today is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. How's it going? Awesome. How you doing, Ben? Good. So we're going to tackle one email from a listener, uh, then a logical reasoning question from the June 2007 LSAT. And then we're going to actually have a guest come on the show, Gary Kinder. Yeah, let's dive in here. So this this first email is from Vacillating in Vancouver. Do you want to read it? Sure. It says, Ben and Nathan, thank you for your labor of love on the podcast. I have recently begun listening during my workday after reigniting my dream to attend law school and become a practicing criminal defense attorney. I've always wanted to become an attorney. I was a National Merit Scholar in high school, earned a full ride to a state school, and was on my way to earning a double major in two humanities fields. However, in fall of my senior year, I had some major events happen within my family and became extremely depressed. I did not do the smart thing, which is medically withdraw from the semester. Instead, I failed all eight of my classes, lost my scholarship, and cashed out with a general studies degree and a 249 GPA. I'm a little confused there. Is that one semester or is that, how do you go all the way down to 2.49 from one semester? Yeah. That's a fall of senior year. So maybe it's the entire senior year. Maybe he ended up having to do another year to finish. Cause if he failed all his classes, then he probably didn't get credit. Yeah. So I went, yeah. I wonder what his GPA was before. I mean, sounds like he was doing well, yeah. but mm, hmm. Well, it's either he wasn't doing all that well to begin with, or he had a disastrous fourth and maybe fifth year, and anyway, ends up with a general studies degree and a 2.49 GPA. Four years later, after working a decent job in an unrelated field, I still have the dream of going to law school and becoming an attorney. Due to my wife's job and our current family situation, now is a perfect time. I know with practice I can get a high enough score to get into some schools. I took the regular SAT cold without studying and got a perfect score on the reading and writing sections. I'm confident after intake tests, I can get my LSAT above 170, maybe even 175 by September. My question is this, are any hopes of scholarship support completely shot? How should I address my failed semester when applying? Are schools that disregard my horrific GPA even worth attending? Honestly, should I listen to that small voice that says I should just scrap the whole idea? Please be brutally honest with your answer. Thanks for all the work you do to help us out. Please don't use my real name. So he's got vacillating in Vancouver here. I liked these questions. You know, I wanted to talk about this email first because it reminds me so much of me. I didn't have depression uh, or have any you know events happen. I was just lazy and a horrible student. But um, I was a National Merit Scholar, and I did also kill the SAT with zero prep, especially the verbal sections, the reading, writing sections of the SAT, I killed with no preparation whatsoever. Literally no preparation. In my town, we didn't prep for the SAT at all. So, you know, his application is going to look a lot like my application. I had a 2.54 GPA. <laughs> He's got a 2.49. Yeah. And I had a 179 LSAT, and it sounds like he can get a 170-something. Hmm. So, you know, I, I wanted to say, you know, and I went to a good but not great school. I got into Hastings, you know, which was ranked 40th or something like that when I was there, and uh, stupidly paid full price. I should have not paid full price for law school at that kind of a school. I should definitely have gotten a scholarship and gone somewhere a little bit lower. 
but I was applying at a time when way more people were applying, you know, in 2008, it was like kind of happening in law school and there were lots of applications coming in and I was still able to get in to Hastings and I was able to get scholarships to USF Golden Gate. I, I stupidly turned them down, but I had scholarships on yeah. the table. Yeah. So I wanted to give him a little bit of encouragement there. I mean, because nowadays it's easier to get in. So if he gets a really elite LSAT score, you know, if he can get the 175, I think he absolutely is going to get into some surprisingly good schools with, with those sure. numbers. Yeah. And then the thing that I didn't even do at all because I was such an idiot when I was applying to law school, I didn't even write an addendum to explain my grades. And, you know, and I was like 30 something years old applying yeah. to school. And I, I had an MBA and a master's in journalism at the time, too. You know, I, I could have easily, well, not, it's not like I'm going to explain it away entirely, but I could have certainly written a paragraph or two pointing the committee's attention to anything other than my 2.5 GPA, mm -hmm. right? I could have just said, hey, I was, you know, fish out of water when I was in an undergrad. I'm from a very small town. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't really have a lot of good counseling. I worked my way through school and I, I just, you know, I, I never, I was the first in my family to go to college and never even contemplated grad school until I was 30 years old. And so I think my current situation is a lot more reflective of my academic ability than these grades I got when I was 21. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, who knows whether that would really carry a lot of weight, but I certainly should have at least made that mm -hmm. case. And here with vacillating, it seems like he's got these events, whatever these events were. I mean, I think he needs to say something about what those events were. And I think he needs to say he should have medically withdrawn and explain it a little bit, like in a sentence or two. But I do think that's going to help, don't you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you have to at least give some context. I mean, I'd be curious to know what his GPA was otherwise, but whatever it was, you probably should note that too, just so it's a number they can focus on. I mean, you have to say what it is. It was before this happened, I had this GPA, which doesn't necessarily mean that would have continued even if you hadn't have gotten depressed, but that doesn't matter. You're just telling them the facts and they can take with them, they can do with them what they want, but at least it gives them another number to think about attorneys love evidence, right? And so he can build it. He needs to think about it in terms of building a case. And so absolutely, you can calculate, here's what my GPA would have been without this last year or without these last couple years. Mm -hmm. Here's what my, and you tell, go ahead and tell them I had a 3.6 heading into this and this happened. Here's how I felt about, here's what happened to me. And, you know, I, I, I should have withdrawn, but I didn't. I, you know, wanted to finish my whatever. And then, yeah, just something like, I think those first three years before this issue happened to me are more predictive of what, you know, or, or a better measure of my academic promise. Yeah, I'm also thinking here too that the person who's reading this might in the back of their mind be thinking, okay, before this problem occurred, you had this GPA, which is good and we're interested in having you come here because we want to evaluate you on the basis of that. But I'm worried that this might happen again. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know if it would be smart to actually address that directly. 
uh, it might be more effective to address it indirectly. Sort of say something like, I learned from this experience that I can deal with this by doing this, or I, just some sentence in there. I mean, maybe even just the mere fact that you now realize you should have withdrawn. But I think they kind of want to avoid even that if possible. They don't want to admit someone who will eventually just withdraw. You know, somehow address that so you can put aside that fear. Yeah, and if he did therapy or if, you know, something happened, whatever he has done to overcome this issue, it sounds like, you know, he, he's got a job now and he's got his he's got a wife and he's got a whatever his current family situation is. It sounds like he's got his life and career kind of on track right now. Mm-hmm. And if he can point to, you know, here's how it was for a couple of years for me and here's how I overcame that and here's what is going on now, I think he might be able to sell them on the idea that, hey, this was an anomaly. This was a couple of years worth of uh, weird stuff that happened. But, you know, what we're really getting here is not a 2.49. We're actually getting this guy who's really a 3.5. Yeah, by the way, that 175 LSAT score is going to go a long way to convincing them that you're actually more of a 3.5 kind of a guy instead of a 2.5 kind of a guy. Yeah. His last sentence here um, is interesting. Honestly, should I listen to that small voice that says I should just scrap the whole idea? Mm. I think... uh, you can have that small voice for a variety of different reasons, but it sounds like his reason here is that he's responding to this fear of being, this fear of failure, basically, right? He's going to go through this whole process. He's going to apply, and these great schools are going to say, sorry, no scholarship, no acceptance, get out of here. So then it's like, why waste my time? Why go through this just to get rejected? If that's why the small voice is talking to you, vacillating in Vancouver, then no, I wouldn't listen to it. I would give it a shot. You're going to fail if you don't even try. If you're having that voice, though, because you realize law (laughs) might not be the right path, then grab hold of it and go somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You got to be really honest with yourself here. You, You keep saying that you have a dream to become a criminal defense attorney. You've always wanted to become an attorney. You still have the dream of wanting of being an attorney. Okay, that's awesome. I mean, you have to follow that, and if that really is your dream. But yeah, if you're having if your if your thoughts are like, oh, actually, maybe I don't really want to do this, uh, then boy, you you need to try to find a microphone for that small voice and turn it way up so that you can hear more of it. You need to be doing this with no doubts about what you want to do with your career. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, of course take the LSAT, of course, kill it, of course, apply and, you know, see what kind of offers come in. If the offers come in and and they're not good enough, you got to be willing to walk away. We talked about that a lot on the last episode, right? You got to, you got to be able to renegotiate, walk away if you don't get good enough deals. But if you can get yourself a good deal, by the way, I I like it when people say they want to do criminal, criminal work, you know, that there are lots of jobs out there for criminal defense Mm -hmm. attorneys. If that's the kind of work you really want to do, then you can do that. And you, you can also go to regional schools and, and get that work. You don't have to go to an awesome school to become a public defender. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You have to pass the bar. And I would almost go so far as to say every law school is sending people into the public defender's office. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's awesome. I mean, and, and if you get it, you end up getting a really good deal on a regional school 
And if you really want to be a public defender, that's, I mean, that's a perfect situation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, go for it. If this is your dream, 100% go for it. And I do not think that 2.5 GPA is going to stop you. Also, you need to watch Better Call Saul. If you haven't already watched Better Call Saul, oh my God, that's an awesome show. All lawyers need to watch Better Call Saul. What is that about? It's uh, in the universe of Breaking Bad. It's it's a prequel to Breaking Bad. Okay. Which, you know that show, right? It was an sure. AMC show. Yeah, yeah. It's on Netflix yeah. now. It's one of the best shows ever made. Better Call Saul might be better than Breaking Bad. People, That's like sacrilege to a lot of people, but I'm uh, halfway through. Season two just came out on Netflix. I just rewatched season one on Netflix, and I'm halfway through season two now. And uh, it's about a... <laughs> funny criminal defense attorney it's Saul Goodman from the original Breaking Bad series and it's a spin-off show about the origins of where Saul Goodman came from hmm. and several of the other uh, Breaking Bad characters so it's it's just awesome it's a great show cool one thought I had is you were talking about his desire to uh, become a criminal defense attorney I just talked to someone yesterday who uh, was listening she just started listening to the podcast and she said everyone in my life <laughs> is telling me not to go to law school. The people at work are telling me that. My family's telling me that. Some friends are telling me that. Former attorneys are telling me that. And then I listen to your podcast and you guys are saying that. And she said, I just need a little little hope here that this is the right decision. And I said, well, it might it might not be. But I was thinking about this. If 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 you imagine yourself practicing law and Maybe that's hard for you to imagine. If it's hard for you to imagine, then you don't know enough about what you're going to be doing. But to the extent you can imagine yourself practicing law, if that itself seems intrinsically uh, interesting or uh, worth pursuing, I mean, it's not necessarily going to be fun all the time. No work ever is fun all the time. But if, if you imagine that, hey, this would be valuable or something you'd like to do, then it probably is the right path and you should feel good about that and confident and move forward. But... If you're doing it at all, and I think this is why a lot of people still go to law school, if you're doing it at all because in our society, for some reason, doctors and lawyers still have this like prestige about them that maybe draws us to the profession, then you definitely need to think again. Yeah. How much do you know about the actual work you're going to be doing? What kind of a lawyer are you actually going to be? The school you're thinking about going to, can it make you the kind of lawyer that you are actually wanting to be? Is this just a fantasy and you've seen, uh, you know, a lawyer on TV and they look, they look cool and you, you think that's, you know, that's why you're going, you think you're going to make a lot of money, that's why you're going, then yeah, absolutely, don't do it. You're naive. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. But if you have some clue and you think that this school can actually get you where you want to go, then you have to go for it. Don't listen to your mom when your mom doesn't know anything about law school, you know, or your dad. Your dad doesn't know anything about law school. Just because your parents are proud of you, that's not a good reason to go to law school. But the flip side of that is if they're telling you not to go, you have to also ask whether they know what they're talking about. You know, do they know what you're getting? Do they have any idea? Why are they telling you not to go? People who haven't been to law school and don't practice law don't know shit about law school and practicing law. So you got to be really careful who you're who you're listening to, you know. Mom and dad proud of you, mm -hmm. or mom and dad just trying to talk you out of it. You have to ask whether they have any justification for the positions they're holding. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, cool. Anything else on this? No, I think this is good. Thank, thanks a lot for writing. I'd love an update. I'm, I'm hoping Vacillating is going to take the June LSAT. Yeah, maybe six months down the road, we'll have a, an update here on um, on this story. Because I, I do think that the high LSAT, low GPA splitter is somebody who can get scholarships and can go on to a very successful legal career. Yeah. Great. Well, let's uh, let's jump into a logical reasoning question from the June 2007 LSAT. Yes, absolutely. We're in section three, and I believe we're on question 21. Okay. Okay, cool. Question 21. Here, I guess I'll go ahead and read it. This is, uh, again, in section three of the June 2007 LSAT. You can just download that, pause the podcast here, and do it on your own, and then come back. Or... <laughs> Just listen along. So this person says ethicist, or this is an ethicist is talking. Mm -hmm. And this person says, on average, animals raised on grain must be fed 16 pounds of grain to produce one pound of meat. All right. Fact. I'm cool with that. You cool with that? I'm cool with that. Yeah. And, you know, I would already be, because this is an ethicist speaking, and because I've heard this argument for... I, I, I'm predicting, right? This is almost like the reading comprehension thing that we talk about of making predictions as you read. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of already have a sense of where they're going to go here? Yeah, it's probably going to be something like this is not an efficient use of resources. That's yeah, what I guess. right. Which we hear vegans, you know, all the time sounding superior, telling us that we shouldn't be for the, for the environment. <laughs> if we want to save the planet and if we want to save all the starving people in the world, we have to ethically, this is an ethicist speaking, we have to stop eating meat because, hey, you could just be eating the grain instead of raising these animals and it's more efficient. That, that Definitely that's where I'm thinking this is going to go. Yep. Okay. Next sentence. A pound of meat is more nutritious for humans than a pound of grain. Ooh, okay. So that sounds like going, the other going way. in a different direction. Um, why meat is good. But what do we have here? It says, but yeah. 16 pounds of grain could feed many more people than could a pound of meat. All right. So they made a concession and they said, look, it's still um, worse to eat meat. So it's like, of course, you'd rather have a pound of meat than a pound of grain. But it takes 16 pounds of grain to get that pound of meat. And 16 pounds of grain are going to feed a lot more people than this pound of meat. Yep. So it's. He hasn't said it yet, right? There's no conclusion there yet, but I'm expecting the ethicist to say, hey, you have to stop eating meat. Stop today. Yeah. All right. With grain yields leveling off, large areas of farmland going out of production uh, each year and the population rapidly expanding, we must accept the fact that consumption of meat will soon be morally unacceptable. Hmm. So this, <laughs> that's the conclusion right there at the very end, right? We must accept the fact that consumption of meat will soon be morally unacceptable. This doesn't go as far as we predicted, right? This isn't the same as saying, therefore, you shouldn't eat meat. It's just saying it's going to become the case that meat eating meat is unacceptable, but what this ethicist thinks about that is less clear and maybe this ethicist doesn't necessarily think that we shouldn't eat meat. It's just that that's what's going to become the norm or the belief, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess, I think the ethicist wants us to stop eating meat. You're not, you're not going to say it's morally unacceptable if you don't probably think, therefore, you know, you should stop. 
but the ethicist never presented a premise that says we are not allowed to do things that are morally unacceptable. <laughs> so I'm open to the possibility that the more, you know, the, because it's the LSAT, right? There's no standard of morality at all on the LSAT. Mm-hmm. So the ethicist could, in the very next sentence, say, of course, you're allowed to do anything, but you can do whatever you want, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. I, I would suspect the ethicist to think that this is wrong and would want to tell us not to do it. But I just do want to point out that it doesn't go that far. It's just talking about what the common beliefs will eventually become. Soon it will be morally unacceptable. Yep. Yeah. But it's bullshit anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what, what's wrong here? Well, you know, I'm accepting the facts, but mm-hmm. I can always think of ways around the facts that don't necessarily lead to the conclusion. So... The conclusion here, we must accept the fact that consumption of meat will soon be morally unacceptable. No, I do not accept that conclusion. That is not a fact. That is your conclusion that you're reaching from these facts. Mm-hmm. Your facts, I, I believe you that it takes 16 pounds of grain to make a pound of meat. I believe you that 16 pounds of grain can feed more people than a pound of meat. I believe you that grain yields are leveling off. I believe you that large areas of farmland are going out of production every year, and I believe you that the population is rapidly expanding. I'm buying all of that evidence. I'm not arguing with any of that evidence. But I would say, yeah, but still, for example, what if we already have thousands of giant silos full of grain that spoil every year? What about that? Sure. Right? Because one, I think that is sort of reality of farming, at least in America. Mm-hmm. And two, even if that weren't reality, it I'm, I'm saying if it were true, grain, you know, grain yields are leveling off, but what if they're leveling off at a level that would feed 100 times as many people as are already on the earth right now? Mm-hmm. It's true that large areas of farmland are going out of production, but maybe that's because we already grow way too much grain and we have way too much grain in storage. Yep. Um, the population is rapidly expanding, but what if the population is rapidly expanding and is still nowhere near the amount of people we would need to run out of grain? Yeah. So those are all the places where I would probe. You know, the ethicist never said we currently have a starvation problem. Yeah. So you're going after that assumption that even with all these apparent restrictions on farming and the increased demand from the rapidly expanding population, we still might not run into that supply-demand problem, right? Yeah. I'm thinking uh, there's another problem here, and I agree with that 100%. I see another problem, and that is even if all of that is true and the assumption is true that we're going to run into a supply-demand problem, does that necessarily mean that people will now start thinking that this thing is morally unacceptable? What if the rich people eat the meat and everyone else looks at them and thinks, wow, I wish I could be like them and eat meat. So no, it doesn't ever become morally unacceptable. Yeah. It just becomes this another indicator of yeah. the divide. Along the same lines. Right, exactly. Even if people are starving left and right, it could still be morally acceptable for me to eat meat. Matter of fact, what if my religion requires me to eat meat five times a day? Because it's more healthy. <laughs> 
my religion requires me to be a carnivore. And so I don't care how many pounds of grain it takes to, to make a pound of meat. My religion requires me to eat meat. For that matter, my religion requires me to inefficiently use grain. My, my religion requires me to make other people starve. You know, there's, there's a big divide here between, hey, we're going to run out of food or this is an inefficient use of calories to therefore it's morally unacceptable. And in yeah. fact, it, there might be my, mor my morals might require me to do the exact opposite of what this ethicist is saying. Yep. So there could be other problems with this argument, but I think those are two pretty good ones. Uh, would you move forward at this point? I would. Okay. So which one following, if true, would most weaken the ethicist argument? And we might expect something along what we were predicting. Maybe, hey, look, we're not going to run into a supply-demand problem. Or just because there is one doesn't mean that people will think it's wrong to be inefficient. So A, even though it has been established that a vegetarian diet can be healthy, many people prefer to eat meat and are willing to pay for it. Mm. Yeah. Cost is not relevant. Preferences are not relevant. I was looking for something that really puts a wedge in in between the moral the morality of it. Yeah. I would like a a lot better if it mentioned something about morality as a wedge. So just to be clear here, I think that preferring to eat meat is relevant because that would if you prefer it, maybe you would try to justify it and not find it to be morally unacceptable. But I feel like this is just talking about the here and now and not addressing the fact that this person is talking about what's going to happen in the future as things change. Yeah, and even though people are willing to pay for it and prefer to eat meat, that could still be morally unacceptable, right? We, we, could, we could come to see that as morally unacceptable. Sure, sure. So yeah. I just, yeah, I'm, I'd be moving on looking for something better. B. Often, cattle or sheep can be raised to maturity on grass from pasture land that is unsuitable for any other kind of farming. All right, but we could still have a supply-demand problem or whatever. What do you think? I think that's going to turn out to be the answer. Okay. Because it's not something that I thought about. I never, I never saw it. I mean, I, never, I wouldn't have predicted that. But here's my, here's my argument for it. Sure. Is that you were the whole argument was built on how much grain it takes to create meat, mm -hmm. and B says, "Yeah, but wait a minute, we can sometimes get meat without using grain at all." I agree. Uh, this farmland would otherwise go wasted, right? Well, it says pasture land that is unsuitable for any other kind of farming. Yep. Including grain. Including grain. And now that I look back at the argument, the whole thing is about grain. And if we're raising them on pasture land, that's just, I guess, grass, weeds, whatever, clover, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. not grain at all. B seems to be an alternate supply of meat. And I see that as a big wedge between this argument's facts and its conclusion. It's just, I can see this objection being like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I grant all your premises about meat, about grain and meat. Yeah, grain yields are leveling off. I know, ooh, farmland's going out of production. I know, ooh, but we can raise cattle on pasture land that is not suitable for any other kind of farming, which means that we cannot feed people grain off of this land. So why can't I grow cattle there and then kill them and eat them? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm cool with that, so we'll leave that open. Okay. Uh, answer choice C, if 
A green diet is supplemented with protein derived from non-animal sources. It can have nutritional value equivalent to that of a diet containing meat. This is not good. This helps the argument by yeah. giving people an alternative way to get their nutritious meal, supposedly. Yeah, strengthening. That's out. Yep. D. Although prime farmland near metropolitan areas is being lost rapidly to suburban development, we could reverse this trend by choosing to live in areas that are already urban. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Well, we could, but we don't have to, and we might not necessarily do that, and so that won't necessarily free up farmland. So I would yeah. say this is too weak and yeah. out. out. E. Nutritionists agree that a diet – I already don't like this, but <laughs> nutritionists agree that a diet composed solely of grain products is not adequate for human health. Hmm. I bet I bet people would be tempted by this. The problem with this is even if it's <laughs> – they're talking about a diet composed solely of yeah. grain products, and we're not talking about eating just grain. We're just talking about excluding meat. Right. Fruits and vegetables and, you know, dairy products and eggs and all sorts of stuff is never mentioned at all by the ethicist's argument. Nobody yeah. nobody is talking about a diet composed solely of grain products. So that, yeah, that's the problem with E as an objection. And I guess you can put yourself in the shoes of the, like, imagine yourself in the courtroom, right? If you if you someone piped in with like, hey, nutritionists agree that a diet composed solely of grain products is not adequate for human health, I think there's a, a ready response to that, which is just, yeah, yeah, I know. We're also going to be eating fruits and vegetables, dude. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know whether I would have uh, crossed out B on my thir first run through or not, but those last three are clearly wrong. And so if I had... I would have definitely gone back to the top. You don't want to then just settle for E. Oh, which happens a lot. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm willing to bet that people choose E as a wrong answer more than a random chance should indicate they would yeah. because they start falling in love. They, they're like, well, it can't be any of these earlier ones, so I'm going to convince myself that it's E. Yeah. But yeah, here, yeah, you very likely, I mean, and, and you have to, right? Sometimes you're going to, I would have ticked off all five. That happens to me quite regularly that I'm like, no, 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 no. And then, yeah, then I have to go back and give them all another chance. Mm -hmm. And hopefully then you can see why we already went through the explanation, but hopefully you can see why B is actually a pretty good weakener here. Yeah. I don't think it disproves it by any means, but it definitely raises this possibility that, hey, we could still make meat. I don't know how much meat we could make, and so that's why I don't think it disproves it, but it definitely disrupts the uh, supply-demand issue. Yeah, well, and because the conclusion here is broader than the facts really justify. If the ethicist had restricted the conclusion to something like, we must accept the fact that meat raised on grain will soon be morally unacceptable, then that would be a much stronger argument in light of something like B. Mm -hmm. Notice here that mm -hmm. the conclusion is so broad, you just can't consume meat at all. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. B just points out, hey, wait a minute. What about this meat? What about this meat that we grew in the lab? And we, you know, it, it, it was never even alive, so it definitely didn't eat grain. Mm -hmm. You know, we fed it uh, whatever we have in the lab. I don't know. 
Lab stuff. We fed it lab stuff. We grew it out of chemicals and using science. I don't know. You know, that would be it. But that's a perfect objection. Yeah. Should we jump into uh, Gary and have Gary come on? Cool. Gary is uh, an attorney, a New York Times bestselling author, the creator of WordRake, which is software that edits for clarity and brevity. Gary has been a writing expert for the American Bar Association and taught over a thousand writing programs for many of the country's most prestigious law firms and corporations. So welcome, Gary. We're glad to have you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Nathan. It's nice to be here with you. Where are you uh, calling in from? Seattle. And believe it or not, it's raining here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. So that doesn't sound surprising to me. So um, I guess it, it rains there all the time, huh? Uh, well, it's lately it's been raining all the time. Not as much as California, though. Yeah, we were just talking about that the other day on the podcast. That uh, the drought is over, Nathan, or almost. Uh, yeah, we've we've got uh, snowpack in the mountains. I guess Mammoth had to call in the National Guard because they had so much snow for snow removal <laughs> help. But uh, no, I just looked at the ten day forecast yesterday for Los Angeles, and it's nothing but sun for ten days, and it's like seventy five every day. So we're back to normal. <laughs> That's good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. So as we were, as Nathan and I were talking about what would be good to talk about with you and what might be of interest to our listeners, several things came to mind. First of all, we are interested in learning more about WordRake and what exactly that does, but. One thing that we've been talking about a lot lately on the show is just the automation of the legal industry and where things are going in that regard. And WordRake strikes me as one of those things that's automate, automating at least one part of legal practice, right? Editing your briefs or whatever it is that you, you need to edit. What this might mean for people who are looking to go into law school now and what will be maybe their career path given this automation in 10 years from now. I mean, things like this are changing pretty quickly. But that's one thing we wanted to talk about. When I was reading a little bit about you, I read that you had written this book, Victim, The Other Side of Murder. At first, I was a little hesitant to read it because it just dives right into this horrific murder. But I, I couldn't put the book down, if you will, and I just finished it pretty quickly and feel like it's a good book that a lot of our listeners might want to consider reading or listening to if they are serious about going to law school. So I have some questions about that. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are taking the LSAT. They're getting ready to go to law school. They're applying to law school. So they have to write a personal statement. And since you are a writing expert, uh, any general tips that you have for them in that regard would be helpful. So anyways, those are some of the things that we were thinking about talking about. Nathan, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? That'll be a good start. Let's, let's start with that. I think the personal statement is maybe something I can help your listeners with right away. Okay. Yeah, please. This will well, help us too because uh, I read a lot of personal statements. My students send me their personal statements frequently. And boy, are they awful in a lot of cases. So let's uh, give them some tips to make my life a little bit more entertaining. I think that... Uh, they have to realize that this is the single thing, really, that is going to be the interface with the with the, the people that they're trying to persuade to allow them uh, to become a law student. I, I teach, as, as uh, Ben just mentioned, I teach a lot of 
writing programs around the country, sometimes at universities. And I was just in Southern California doing a program at Pepperdine for just the whole school, whoever wanted to come, administrators, students, teachers, professors. And one of the um, administrators came up to me afterwards and he said that his job is to give out uh, scholarships for graduate schools at Pepperdine. He said, I have to read, they, they have to write an essay uh, you know, asking for the scholarship. And he said, I have to read all of these. Um, and he said, they're atrocious. They want me to do them a favor, give them thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. And they can't even put sentences together. These are people who are either about to graduate or from college or have already graduated from college. And it, it really affected him. He said, I, I feel like I can't read any more of these because uh, they just are, there are typos, grammatical slips. Uh, there are, there's nonsense in them. There are uh, sentence fragments. And something I told the crowd uh, that day was, believe it or not, there was a study done about software engineers applying for jobs. It, it laid out 10 factors that go into whether they will be accepted. Number one, which was like four or five inches tall, it was huge. It dominated all of the other factors. And that was their personal statement. It was how they wrote, how whether they had typos, whether they, um, you know, it, it, did they really care about what they were doing in writing this reason, this even on the, the resume and why I would like to work here. So I, I just encourage your listeners to pay a lot of attention to this personal statement and make sure that it is as perfect as they and maybe a friend or a, a parent um, uh, can help them get it to, to be because uh, that is going to be a key factor. And as soon as you see if you are in your position, Nathan, for instance, are one of these other people um, that are reading these personal statements, you have a lot of power there. And as soon as you see uh, more than one typo and a couple of grammatical slips, you've already crossed these people off the list. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, I, I very much encourage them just to get down and, and edit it and have someone else look at it uh, and pay close close attention. Um, that, that's really as much, I mean, there are all kinds of things that you can do, getting people's attention and that sort of thing, but I would need a whole day to get into some of that stuff to tell them how to write it. But you want to write as clearly and concisely as you can. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so let's say someone has sat down and they've written a rough draft and they have a, let's assume that they have a, a compelling story that they want to share and they feel like it's the right story that they should be sharing. What's one way that they can go about editing it? Because, I mean, some of these mistakes they might not realize, right, that they're making, but some that they can catch. So what are some of the things that you suggest to people as they go through each sentence and so on? You know, you're, you're leading right into my, uh, I kind of hate to use cliches, but wheelhouse, whatever you want to call it, uh, with with the WordRake editing software. Uh, WordRake is not set up purposely not set up to deal with grammar issues. We're not concerned with grammar issues, although we we will handle some of the higher level uh, grammar issues. What WordDrake is designed to do and what we have all of our patents in is finding patterns of words that are unnecessary. 
So it, it'll get rid of a lot of the uh, clutter. We're, we're, we're used in thousands of law firms. Your, your law school applicants should uh, understand that they're going to need to know how to use this. Pretty soon we'll probably be in all law firms, but a lot of big government agencies, a lot of the biggest law firms. And the idea is to write as clearly and concisely as you can. So you give your reader just the words that actually have meaning. And we found that uh, with WordDrake, uh, once you have your document written, or as you said, been in, in a rough draft, you rate that document, it'll point out immediately, just like a real editor, it'll come out in red, um, things will be crossed out, things will be added that we suggest in the edits. And uh, so it looks authentic. It looks just like a real live person had edited this. Uh, and when you accept, you then accept or reject the edits one at a time. And if you uh, like an edit, it resets uh, without those words in it. If you don't like it, it resets the way it was. And the thing that we found with this is it acts like a real collaborator because you, when you see uh, an edit that you like, you change part of that sentence. And now you often will see something else in the sentence that you could improve. And there are no edits left from Wordrake there. Uh, but without that dynamic uh, set in motion, that editing dynamic by Wordrake, you would not have seen th these other problems with the sentence that you now can make better. So it, it's kind of working together, the, the two of you, you and your, your personal editor there. Uh, that helps a lot. Having someone else read it, it's amazing to me, as careful as I am, and I've been writing full-time for 40 years now, so I, I've gotten better at it as I go along, but I still have people edit uh, my work, whether it's my wife or my editor in, in New York, and they will find things and they'll say, why did you write this? And I, I, I don't have an answer. I'm thinking, why did I write that? I don't know why I wrote that. It could be so much better. So it's, uh, again, I would use uh, Wordrake. That's the only software in the world that will actually help you find the unnecessary words and to make it more clear and concise. Uh, and try to get um, a, another human opinion if you can. On something that's important, you should be able to find another human to go through it. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I found helpful when I'm going through something that I've written is to go through each sentence and read it out loud. Uh, do you find that helpful? Sometimes, yes. Uh, that'll help you with uh, the syntax. Syntax is the is the sound words make on paper. It's the rhythm we create with our words. And if if the syntax is good, uh, it has a certain rhythm to it that makes it easier for a reader, so it's more enjoyable to to read it. And I think that reading out loud, will often reveal mistakes in the, or, or uh, a rhythm that's not the rhythm you want uh, in the written word. And it probably will point out some other things where you have some rhyming that you don't want, for instance. Mm -hmm. So that's with the draft completed. If someone's sitting down and trying to think about what to write about, do you have any uh, suggestions for how to brainstorm ideas or to get the, get the ball rolling? Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent question. Here are a few tips for that. This is getting over writer's block. Uh, I write writing tips every week, which we also make available at uh, Wordrake. First of all, you want to imagine, you, you don't want anything in front of you. I don't care if you're writing a brief, if you're writing a personal statement, you want to get everything off your, your desk. It's a nice clean desk and it's just you and this blank screen. 
Uh, otherwise, the, the research just gets in the way of your thinking. You write everything from memory, at least the first two or three versions of it. And I would then imagine a conversation. Uh, the conversation uh, would be between you and a real person in a real setting. Now, it takes place in your imagination, but you have to imagine that real person in a real setting. And it could be having a glass of wine after work. It could be just uh, having a beer with a friend and just talking. It could be going for a walk with somebody. But you just have to imagine, you know, literally imagine that situation. And the last thing that person has said to you is, tell me about it. So you might be talking to them about, well, I've got to write this personal statement, you know, to try to get into law school. And they'll say, well, tell me about the personal statement. And or they'll say, what is this case all about? And then the, the, the key here is that if you are with a friend and they ask you, tell me about this situation, you are not going to walk away. You're mm -hmm. not going to you're not going to leave the the beer, you know, you're, you're not going to stop walking and turn around and go back. You're not going to drop the phone. Uh, you're going to say something to them. The, the second piece of this, besides imagining the conversation, is that you can't stop. Mm -hmm. Once you start to answer that question, what, what is this? What is this all about? You, you can't stop. Another piece to it is that your alter ego is like Tom Wolf in the white suit at the cocktail party. You're just you are writing down everything that's being said in this conversation that you're observing right in front of you in your imagination. And you don't worry about spelling, typos, punctuation, grammar. You don't worry about sentence fragments. You just want to get black on white, as writers say. You just want to get something down that you then can work with. So you just type without stopping as you have this conversation with this other person. It'll take only about four minutes or so. And the, the, uh, that's your right brain just spewing nonsense on a page. Uh, it'll give out after around four minutes or so, and you'll have a mess on a piece of paper, but that is a terrific start. And um, then you allow the left brain to come in and organize uh, some sort of logical order. Uh, and that is the uh, starting into the second draft. And it all starts to uh, fall together really quickly if you have that original conversation and answer the question, what is this all about? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really good thought. I think um, making it a concrete setting is something I hadn't thought about before. So it's not just imagining talking to someone else. You're imagining talking to someone else in a particular setting that makes it even more real, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. And there's that urgency if, if you really do imagine it and sort of play the game, if you will. There's that urgency uh, to and the necessity of answering that question. You, again, you can't drop the phone or just walk away. Yeah. You know, I am curious to to hear what Nathan has to say about some of the negative things that he's uh, read in his personal statements. One thing that comes out to to me when I whenever I'm reading personal statements, I feel like a lot of times I'm I'm reading through them and uh the person is giving a lot of background information or extraneous information and I honestly want to just say to them cut this entire first paragraph, second paragraph, third paragraph, just get rid of this entire thing. And there's something you briefly mentioned in the fourth paragraph that seems promising, and I want you to unpack it. it, it there seems to be this tendency to sort of, I guess, just give a really 
high level overview of some of the thoughts that they have as opposed to really diving into one idea and expanding on it in a way that the reader can really connect with as opposed to sort of just summarizing their resume in a way. I feel like it can be challenging because sometimes people get wedded to what they've written, right? They, they took all this time to write these paragraphs and now it's like, I feel like they're not really adding any value and they need to get rid of them. And sometimes I think they want to keep them because they, they wrote them or they don't necessarily know how to dig into something and really expand it. Do you have any advice for how to sort of dig into an idea or a story and add more meaning to that story? What kind of things should people talk about, I guess? I mean, maybe that's a hard question to answer. I don't, I'm not sure, but. No, Ben, it's, it's actually, it's a very easy question to answer, and it's a very perceptive observation. You said paragraph four. I've always thought it was paragraph five. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I'm thinking in terms of, like, you're writing a, a uh, what we used to call them queries, I guess they can still be called a query, but you want a magazine to, to publish you, whether it's online or hard copy. Um, and, you know, we used to write queries and they would be, they would have to be one page. I started to see this pattern in me. I had to unpack everything at the very beginning, not unpack, but uh, load in all of this, this overview stuff first before I got down to what was serious. So I always started to get into something good about the fifth paragraph and got to get to the immediate right now and then you can go back and fill in as you need to and that's why i think in these personal statements i would i would start off with the most frightening experience i've ever had was one day when i was hiking it and all of a sudden you know you are telling a story you're not just talking about things that you had that have uh that you've accomplished uh, you're actually telling a story that reveals something about you that's very personal, and that will would draw. You guys can tell me if you think that openings like that would draw you into the personal statement. But I would open with something uh, like that, or I was so embarrassed one day when uh, something like that that's more more immediate, and then you can drop back and tell a little more of the of the things that the person's going to need to know about why you want to go to law school here. Yeah, no, that's really good to know. So, uh, Nathan, did you? what are some of the things that you encounter as you read uh, the personal statements that are sent to you? Yeah, I mean, on that last point, I think you're both totally right. People do way too much introduction and not enough just storytelling. There's that fundamental principle of storytelling. I think if you've never read it, we should dig it up and post it. There's an article about Pixar's Fundamentals of Storytelling. It's really, really interesting. Of course, Pixar are really good storytellers, right? One of those principles is that you should start the story, start as deep into the story as you possibly can. So we don't need to hear about your kindergarten class and your high school experience and your college experience and how you decided that you wanted to become a lawyer. You can go back into some of that stuff, but you need to start with a moment of action and something happening. So think about the very first line of your personal statement should be deep into the story so that immediately the reader gets some action and you, you get to hook them a little bit. And I think that's what Gary was just talking about. We get way too much introduction. We, we don't need a seventh grade style uh, five paragraph essay here where you're gonna tell me it, you know at length what you're gonna tell me before you tell me. Just go ahead and tell me. This is only a two page document and so you need 
you need to be saying something right off the bat. Nathan, this this is not just for seventh graders either. I mean, I have seen partners yeah. at huge law firms writing to really important multi-million dollar a year billable hour type clients, and they will put all, I call it memo language. They'll t- they'll explain how they organize the thing, and they'll they'll talk about the obvious. They'll explain that they did research here and research there, which nobody wants to know any of. And they'll get around to what that client needs to know on page three or four or five, if they're still reading. So it, it's not something that's that's uh, just for uh, people in in primary or secondary education or, or college. Uh, this this happens out in the real world. It's probably because we grow up doing that kind of stuff and nobody calls us on it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We talked a, a minute ago about the importance of editing. I mean, that might be the most important thing is that this document really does need to be perfectly edited. Just because you graduated from UC Berkeley does not mean that you're capable of editing this document yourself, by the way. I don't know, I'm an old man, I guess, but I'm very disappointed by the writing that I see coming out of universities these days and even the top schools. People send me documents that I'm just, I can't believe that came out of UC Berkeley. It's shocking. It's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's because the, the students just aren't taking enough time with the document. They're not reading it and rereading it and re-editing it. They don't understand how editing actually works. I don't know if they have too high of an estimation of their own abilities. You know, they, they, oh, well, I spent two hours on this, so of course it must be perfect now. But I'll read two sentences and I will already be judging you based on the quality of your writing. Gary mentioned syntax, the the sound of words. That's one thing that I think is really missing from people's writing is that they read it and they don't understand that it's supposed to sound like someone is speaking. We're supposed to be having a conversation. I want to be able to hear the author's voice when I read this document. And people write things, bizarrely, they write things in a way that they would never ever say them out loud. So I really like that idea of reading the document out loud and just listening to the way it sounds. Ben, you mentioned unintentional rhyming. That happens. I think similarly, you'll have unintentional alliteration. People will have uh, unintentional, for sure, they would, they repeat words way too often. They'll use the same word three sentences in a row and they, they have no idea. There's just, you would never do that in conversation because it would sound stupid. So you would, you would pick a different word if you were thinking about it. Yeah, I think lack of attention, really just people aren't trying hard enough, I think is a major, major problem. As you were talking, Nathan, I started to think about, <laughs> and I, I probably shouldn't be saying this, so I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think, Gary, because I'm not a practicing attorney, but my sense is, is that when you're becoming an attorney, you're really becoming a highly paid professional writer. And sometimes I don't think people necessarily see it that way. Maybe they see themselves as an advocate or whatever else they kind of imagine in their mind about the practice of law. But I think the vast majority of practicing attorneys are essentially highly paid writers who have to be very good at their craft because they're using the written word to persuade people or whatever. And (laughs) that's one reason why I think law schools should legitimately put a lot of weight on this personal statement. I think they're just doing it because it's something to look at. It's something to evaluate someone on the basis of before you even maybe look at their resume or anything else. 
I, I don't know. Any thoughts on on that, Gary? As uh, someone who's becoming for for someone who's becoming a an attorney down the road. Oh yeah, uh, lawyers are the biggest group of professional writers in the world, and beyond that, more rides on their writing than anybody else's writing. You have millions, billions of dollars, people's lives, corporations' futures. And all of that is writing on the writing of the lawyers. And it, the better it is, the better they're going to be for their clients and the more their uh, clients are gonna, gonna prevail. I, you can talk to judges about that. One thing too that's related to this, it goes back to something Nathan said. Let, let's just say that you're now, you finished law school, you passed the bar and you're working for a, one of the big law firms. And you have to uh, you have to write something you know, at this at that stage your first year you're writing a memo to a partner that might be turned into a brief eventually. If the partner sees that uh, there are some typos and grammar mistakes and things don't quite make sense and you're not you're not setting up a uh, a position and then advocating for that uh, position supporting that position, they will they will tend to not want you to continue at that law firm. And that sounds pretty drastic, but a lot of my teaching is with first year associates at these, at these big firms. And so, so I see this a lot and I talk to the partners and I talk to the associates. This, this is the key to it. A partner does not expect you to know everything about a law practice. They think back to 20, 25, 30 years ago when they were starting out and they felt so green and they didn't know when, you know, they had been out to the law review at Columbia, but, but they felt so lost their, their first year at the law firm because all the rules are different now. They don't even know what, at some point, you really don't even know what the rules are. In law school, if you do this, you get this, this grade and, um, and then you, you graduate at a law firm. It's not quite like that. So they don't expect you to know everything and to be brilliant and come up with all these great ideas because they know that as they develop you as a colleague, they will bring you along and because you are bright, these things will eventually become a part of who you are professionally. But there's one thing they cannot teach and that is being careful. So when they see that the writing is sloppy and doesn't make sense and sentence fragments and as we said the common typos and that just means that you as an associate do not care and they cannot teach you to care so they don't mind if you make uh if you if you go to research something and maybe end up on a bunny trail somewhere because that happens to all of us they they can correct that they can guide you on that but they can't teach you to be careful I wonder if in some cases, too, it's not only an indication that you're not careful, but maybe an indication that you're struggling with some of the underlying ideas, too, right? I mean, in some ways, when you can't clearly write what you're trying to say, it's because maybe you're having trouble thinking about what you're trying to say, and maybe that's a signal of your potential to deal with these issues on some level. I, I think that that is absolutely true, Ben. I, you know, people frequently say, well, I, 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 I know what I want to say, but I can't, uh, I can't say it. And the truth is they don't know what they want to say or they would be able to say it. You know, when I taught all these seminars over the years, I don't teach quite as much now because I'm all involved with WordRake, but 
all these years uh, teaching um, people, I'd be talking to people afterwards or you see the, uh, the evaluations and they would say, you know, this is a course about writing, but it really is a course about thinking, thinking clearly and concisely and getting the story out there and getting it up front and, and, and backing up your position and that kind of thing. So all of this, if, if you can't write it clearly, you're not thinking about it clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about had to deal with uh, the automation of the legal industry. I just finished the book Homo Deus. Have you guys heard of this book or or read it? I have not. I have not. Okay, Uh, have you heard of the book Sapiens? Yes. The Sapiens was this book um, by, let's see here, Harari. Um, He basically gives a brief history of humankind. That's the idea. It starts 100,000 years ago and goes to the day. Well, this Homo Deus book is the follow-up book to that, and it's called A Brief History of Tomorrow. And he goes through a lot of different things, um, cultural changes he thinks might occur, uh, technological changes that he thinks might occur. And one of the things that he talks about a lot at the end of the book, just chapter after chapter after chapter, is this idea of algorithms. In other words, you know, you have IBM's Watson, you have WordRake, which is basically a set of algorithms, right? Uh, you've, you've written down some rules and you've said, hey, computer program, when you encounter these scenarios, we want you to do this or you want you to do that and so forth. And historically, algorithms have been good but not perfect and we are still... Uh, as humans more effective than them. But he's saying that a lot of algorithms today are getting so good that they're already better than we'll ever be. I mean, simple examples are like chess or whatever, but even the stock market right now is all run by algorithms. It's very hard to uh, (laughs) think as fast as they do. And one part of the book, he talks about law quite a bit, actually. And he says that, and granted, this is just his opinion and his argument, but He says, look, a lot of things that lawyers do, looking for precedent, looking for patterns in the law, and then trying to make arguments that fit your case, are things that can be turned over to algorithms. And as they they do so, uh, even just, you know, editing a document, as WordRake does, you don't need as many people doing what before had to be done by a person. And so he says that... um, in the next 20 years, he goes through a whole bunch of industries, but one of them is law. And again, he says, look, it's impossible to predict the future, but it's very reasonable to think that a big chunk of law will be taken over by algorithms and there won't be that much left. And I'm wondering, you you have this experience with WordRake. It's something that you're actively working on, and it does seem like it is replacing, at least on a small scale, some people who would be otherwise reviewing or editing documents. And if you see this as something that is sort of taking over the industry and could eventually replace a big chunk of it, if not all of it eventually, but a, a large portion of it. Well, of course, people said that there, there would never be, what, a combustion engine and we'd never be able to fly and all those kinds of things. But I don't know that uh, at least any time in the near future, in the next couple of centuries, that we're going to have computers that take over all of our thinking, so we just push buttons, but they're still going to uh, require, I think we're going to require some of that 
understanding and that, that ability to uh, understand and appreciate nuance. With Wordrake, so it started uh, after I'd been teaching for quite some time, I started to see patterns and things that we could do to help lawyers spot unnecessary wording. And I thought, what if, what if I could create a, a magic button that a lawyer could push? And the button said, make me a better writer. And that, that was my goal. And that's what we ended up with is make me a better writer. It helps the, the associates gain more confidence because if you're writing something for a partner, you're writing something to a, a client, you're going to want that to be your very best best work. And you're, like I said, you're editor of Law Review of Columbia, but at Columbia, but but um, you, this is a whole new situation. You sure wish you had somebody else to take a look at your work, but all the other associates and anybody else you might know at the firm is really busy. They don't have time. So is there software that you could push that make me a better writer button and could go over it and help you trim it up a little bit, make it better, make it more concise? If you look at it from the partner's perspective, a partner doesn't want to be spending all of her time editing the associate's work. She wants to look at, okay, let's let's dig down into these issues. Are these the right issues? There's, let's get that. And she wants to talk to them more conceptually on a much higher level and not waste two or three billable hours that she cannot bill for. If she could take the associate's work and just run it through WordRate, that would be a huge jump start in the editing process. And of course, what she would do is have the associate do that first before she even looks at it. She would say, well, have you raked it yet? Because she's not going to have to wade through a lot of uh, extra stuff. Yes, I think it saves people time. It's not going to replace the associates, not going to replace the partners. I know that a lot of clients are demanding that their, their law firms prove that they are being efficient with the 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 uh, client's money what kind of productivity software do you my big law firm i'm paying millions of dollars to every year use to make sure that you're being efficient so you're not billing me for time when something is not being accomplished and this is huge and uh, ask anybody in a law firm who's been there for a short while and they will tell you that clients refuse to pay the bill unless they know what their what their money's being spent on it's becoming necessary that not only are clients doing this but um, it now I know the American Bar Association and several state bars in their rules and regulations require all lawyers to be proficient. I think that's the word they use, proficient with new technology. And they have to show, you, you can actually uh, be sanctioned for not uh, following this regulation where you have to keep up with software to make you more uh, effective and more efficient. So, and there's so many things that can be automated. The editing is, is part of it. There's still things that, you know, like I said, you want to, do we need to keep this issue? Well, uh, WordRake is not going to decide whether you want to keep the issue. It's just going to help you decide which words you can get rid of and expressing the issues you decide to keep. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it to lawyers to uh, use a rule to try to make everyone uh, go faster. That's yeah, that's right. funny. I wonder, is there a software for blue booking, right? Like that's a pain. You know, there is a um, there's a software that I really like it's kind of a uh, compliment to what WordRake does, uh, but it's called, and I'll do so, you know, put out a word for them. It's called Perfect It. 
P-E-R-F-E-C-T-I-T, perfected.com. And they will go through and, and make sure that you, you know, you're not spelling the word this way this time and this way this time, or it's capitalized here, but not capitalized here. And it's especially effective in, uh, in contracts when things really have to be consistent. But it'll, it'll point out these uh, discrepancies, inconsistencies in your writing. And it's a really nice little piece of software. And I think, gosh, I hope I'm not uh, saying something incorrect, but I think that they also do uh, the, the Blue Book forms, too. Hmm. Interesting. The last thing I was hoping to talk about was this book, Victim, The Other Side of Murder. I, like I said, it, it's a book about a pretty gruesome murder that took place in 1974. I had no idea that this happened. Obviously, it happened before I was even born. But uh, I felt like your book, which focused on the victims primarily, did an excellent job of just helping someone like me uh, someone who has never had any sort of experience remotely similar to that, and I assume most of our listeners and most people in general, kind of get into the mind of the victims and understand the pain and suffering that they went through, as well as the whole legal process. I mean, you talked about the Supreme Court and its role in this <laughs> in this debacle and uh, the first responders and everything. If, if you don't mind just talking about it for a brief moment, telling uh, our listeners what it was about, why you decided to write it, I think it's something I would strongly encourage people to read, just to even just get an introdu- introduction to law and what happens when really bad things happen. Well, thank you for that nice introduction on that, Ben. I don't know, honestly, if it's something I would suggest that people read to go into law <laughs> okay. You know, it's a crime, and uh, I certainly cover some of the uh, trial, the, the more salient and poignant parts of it. And the legal system is fascinating. Next week, I had some people call and they want to come out for an interview for a television series they're doing on true crime. And somehow, this crime that occurred, what's that been, 30, 30 something years ago. Yeah. Some, I'm losing track of time. Forty something years ago, um, they are they want to cover that uh, crime. It was called the Hi-Fi Murders, and that uh, happened in Ogden, Utah. You know, from the very beginning, there have been a lot of true crime books. You know, just hundreds, thousands of them. When I came across this, I thought, you know, to my knowledge, no one has ever written about the victim side of these crimes. We always read about the perpetrator and what they were like before they committed this heinous crime. And I thought that would be really interesting um, to go into this this really tiny mi- uh, microcosm of our society and, and reveal that. What is it really like? I mean, it's it wasn't easy to approach the uh, victims and say, hey, you know, I'd like to hear about your tragedy. How'd you feel when you found out that? It doesn't quite work like that. It took me years uh, to get close to them and to understand that the story is about a murder that takes place in the basement of the Ogden Hi-Fi shop. And uh, eventually there were five people tied up in that basement. There were two young people who worked there, a young girl and a young man who worked there. And then there was the father of the young man. And then there was a woman who was the mother of the central character, whose name is Courtney. And Courtney uh, was about 16. He happened to be passing through the store and went right in the middle of the robbery at closing time. So there were five people tied up. 
they did some really ugly things. They, they, they thought that they could dispose of the witnesses instead of shooting them because th- th- this was a downtown setting. So, and there were stores that shared common walls up and down this main street. And so they were, they wanted to keep it quiet. So they had seen a Magnum force, I think a Clint Eastwood movie in the movie, this pimp disposes, if you will, of, of one of his hookers uh, by forcing her to drink Drano. And, you know, she dies in a couple seconds and that's it. Well, when you drink Drano, you don't die in a couple seconds. And uh, it's an agonizing situation. But anyhow, the people didn't die so in the basement right away. So they went around, one of the guys did, and shot everybody. Miraculously, the one father survived it, and then the young boy, Courtney, survived it. And the story really focuses on him and his father, who was the husband of the woman who died that night. The story actually opens with the uh, the ambulance coming into the hospital, the Ogden Hospital, and we're you know watching Courtney just hanging the balance. <laughs> actually, a good part of the book for months, right? I mean, that was yeah. a long time. He was in ICU, and in ICU, you either die or you get better. You don't hang on the edge that long in the ICU, and yet he was there for all those months, and it was just agonizing. And talking to his father, we got to be pretty close. In fact, I visited him. He's 92. I visited wow. him uh, last fall. So the, the focus really is on him and how he dealt with this tragedy in his life. And, and then I, I cover, uh, of course, a little bit of the background. It got less and less as I wrote the book. The uh, victims part of it just expanded. And the part about the uh, main perpetrator's name was Dale Pierre, just got smaller and smaller. But I went down to Trinidad and Tobago, where he grew up, made two trips down there, and interviewed family and people who knew him and just got a feel for the countryside down there. And, you know, laid out his his background, but there was never an excuse of any kind for what he did. And eventually he and one of the other guys, they, they figured there was many as seven people involved in this this heist at the stereo shop. But there, there were three convicted of various things, two of them first degree murder. And both of those men were executed probably about 15 or so years later. But that's that's the uh, basis of the uh, of the uh, story, and it's very touch. It's it's a little bit of a tough read uh, because it's difficult. But I got a lot of letters, and so did Byron Nesbitt, uh, from people saying that this book has helped me so much. It, you know, I've been through my own tragedy. It was it was really uplifting and and helpful for me to read how someone else handled a similar situation. Yeah, I I just felt like as an outsider. It was helpful for me to see how life goes on after these crimes occur. I think in most cases we're focusing on the crime and we're focusing on the perpetrator and what punishment did they get and what happened to them. And maybe, I mean, I don't know exactly. I don't necessarily follow these things, but maybe the victims tend to get forgotten. Reading through your book and just kind of uh, vicariously experiencing all the, the different challenges, I mean, obviously not all of them, a very, very small percentage of them, but some of the challenges that uh, Byron Nebs- Nesbitt uh, faced and Courtney and their whole family, really, 
I felt like would just be very valuable to understand is, you know, if you're going to become an attorney and you are at all interested in criminal law, understanding what maybe the the victims of any sort of crime might be going through as you work with them, or even if you're on the, um, you know, defense side, just having a better sense of what what can be going on. I also thought it was interesting that um, in this case, right, it seemed quite clear that these perpetrators were responsible. There wasn't really any doubt as to who committed the crime. And so they were, they were convicted and sentenced to be executed. But then that, that process took a long time, which wasn't surprising to me after going through law school. It's like, oh yeah, you're going to have some review for this. But I didn't realize that they were going to go through what was it, nine or 10 appeals? Like they just had to keep going through the system. I I was pretty surprised about that. That, That's one of the complaints about the the, uh, death penalty is that it just results in so many appeals that um, it might be better just not to have a death penalty, but just, you know, life in prison, but make sure that it is life. I understand where you're coming from now, Ben, on, on that, why you think it would help people in law school if they want to go into to prosecution or, or defense work in criminal law, it really helps you understand the, what happens with these people. Uh, life does go on, you know, people go about their business, the prosecutor prosecutes the uh, case and he's got lots of, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400 active cases he's working on, she's working on. And we tend to forget what happened. It's in the paper that that there was an appeal and you see pictures of the perpetrators, but you know, and once in a while there, if it, de- uh, it depends on the, on the crime, this was a pretty high profile crime, but it just, uh, we don't hear that much about what's going on with the uh, victims. There was one thing, uh, it was so simple, but I remember reading before I actually went down and started, uh, actually I got in the cell with Dale Pierre, the perpetrator and interviewed him and, during the uh, trial, and then it was about a year before I met members of the family, and you know, I started realizing early on, after I had met with Pierre and and uh, you know, written to him and this kind of stuff too, that the real story lay with the uh, victims. But somewhere along in there, uh, I, I remember reading. It was a few days after the um, murders, and Courtney was in the hospital. And it talked about the perpetrators and they had been captured 24 hours later and then their few early hearings and then the trial was coming up. And the very last line in the in the newspaper article said, and Courtney Nesbitt remains in critical condition at the Ogden Hospital. And I remember when I read that, I thought remains in critical condition. I was trying to imagine that. And imagine his family and his friends and church members and teachers. What does that mean, remains in critical condition? And what is going on around him? And that's where the story was. As it turns out later, that's exactly where the story was. Yeah. And to talk about not just the impact, obviously, which was most significantly on him and his family and his father and his siblings, but um, I thought it was interesting at the end of the book or somewhere, I can't remember where you started talking about this, but you, you, uh, I guess, interviewed 
the attorney who kept uh, filing the briefs or the whatever f- on behalf of the state, right? This, this Every time this went up for appeal, someone from the state had to come in and say, okay, look, we still think that they should be executed or whatever. And that person saying that their life had basically been changed by this one crime, like 80% of their career had been dedicated to it or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly, but I was, I was pretty stunned. I, I remember talking with him, you know, he was in the attorney general's office and in the appellate division. And so he had to defend all these appeals that were brought by the uh, defense lawyers. And yeah, he, he said that a large part of, uh, you know, like you said, I don't know if it was 80%, but if I said 80% of the book, that's what it was, of his time was, was spent just handling this, this one appeal. Ideally, let's not have any, any bad, serious crimes like this. Uh, but they do happen, and they have to be handled a certain way. Unfortunately, we live in a live in a civilized country. Well, thank you so much, Gary. I mean, just everything that you've shared with us today—it's been very helpful. Nathan, did you have anything else? No, that's great. Thanks a lot, Gary, for coming on the show. Nathan, Ben, it's been a a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you. you Ask great, perceptive questions. You seem like really good guys too. So, it's just nice talking with you. <laughs> well, thanks again. We'll, we'll have to catch up again soon. Sure. Bye bye. Take care, Bye. All righty. <clears throat> Is Gary still there? I'm still here. Oh. Uh, yeah, cool. We're going to uh, go on, Gary, and do some uh, just LSAT related stuff. So you can just, I think, sure. hit the hang up button and uh, we will. Uh, th- it takes about a week to get the episode launched. Uh, edited and launched, and we will send you a link to it as soon as that's ready to go. You, you know what I forgot to tell them? I forgot to, to tell your audience uh, two things, that they can find out more about WordRake. Oh, yeah. At WordRake.com slash thinking. And if they're interested in the software, they can get a 15% discount. And the code is um, WordRake. Let me double check that. It's Wordrake slash thinking. I think that's right. Um, is that something you still can get out to them? Oh, yeah, yeah. We can just, uh, we'll have our editor uh, uh, add it in. So uh, the best way for people to find out about Wordrake is, what was it again? It was wordrake.com forward slash thinking. Thinking, yeah, your, your show title, thinking. And oh, and then the fifteen percent discount is just the word thinking. Okay, and then uh, if people want to contact you via email or anything else, how can they reach you? Uh, it's I'm uh, Gary K at wordrake.com. All righty. All right, thanks, Gary. That's great. Thank you, guys. Good luck to you. All right. Yep. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. You can reach the show email help at thinkinglsat.com, and that comes to both Ben and me. You can tweet the show at thinkinglsat, tweet me at infox, tweet Ben at strategy prep. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend, and we will talk to you soon.